newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-ling, city... It's going to be a great show, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on the important news media events of the week with a, a bunch of old journalists here in upstate New York offering our views on the vast world of journalism. I shouldn't have said old Seasoned. Show. Seasoned, seasoned journalist. Seasoned. That's very nice. Yeah. Uh, spicy, some salty, might say. A little spicy. salty. <laughs> hey, or Rex, 80 is the new 50. Oh, is I that right? It. That's terrific. So that means I'm still headed into puberty. All good. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was great the first time through. I'm Rex Smith here with Dr. Alan Shartok, with Barbara Lombardo, and with Judy Patrick. And we are happy to help guide some of your thinking through issues of journalism, and you can offer your thoughts here. Let me give you something to react to, please, panelists, a commentary, suggesting that it's time for journalism to break the cycle of crime reporting. That, in fact, we pay too much attention to what's going on with crime, that we run the names of suspects in the newspapers, at least, in minor crime stories, that we focus on crime. Should we be paying less attention to crime? Dr. Shartok, you want to start off on this, please? You cannot say that we are spending too much time on what the public really wants, and their safety is what they really want. That's number one to them. So you see in a New York City mayoral primary where there are several progressives running, it turns out that the guy who had been the ex-cop and a police captain wins, at least gets the most votes as we speak today. So we have many times discussed on this program the idea that either newspapers can lead, as politicians sometimes want to do, or they can follow what their people want to read. And I think what they want to read is about crime, and I think is at the top of the list because I think they want to be safe. Barbara? I think that only touches the surface of the question because it's not just covering crime. And I totally agree that people like to read about crime and they want to know if they're safe. But how do we define the coverage of crime? And are we reporting on the what happened and where it happened and why it happened? Or are we also reporting on who did it and when do you put somebody's name in a story? The bigger the newspaper, the lower the chances that somebody's name is going to be actually mentioned in a big story. And when you get to the smaller town papers, for crimes that would be considered pretty minor, a lot of times you're just spitting out the police plotter and you're putting in people's names it's not about crime. It's not about public safety. It's almost prurient interest about what are your neighbors doing, and is that really newsworthy? What are you, the prurient interest patrol? I mean, yes, we are in parts. Well, sure. But the point here is that there is a reason that they put the crime blotter in the paper, and the reason is they know people want to read that. And that is number one. And I know I've heard many people as I walk around the neighborhood say, did you see, did you see, did you see? Uh, so it, so it, it rises to a pretty important uh, position in, in why newspapers are doing it. Editors are quite frequently, especially if they're in competitive situations, uh, quite frequently wanting to go with whatever it is that will make people pick the paper up. 
Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette, what would you say to that? So my thinking on this is has dramatically changed in recent years. When I was a reporter and when I was an editor, I would say, oh, we are the paper of record. We are going to put in every arrest. But you know what? We weren't putting in every arrest because it was impossible to get to every village police department, every county. State police typically didn't give us all their arrests. And the other thing is we weren't following up, and so we would report that somebody was arrested, but we weren't reporting what happened to their case. The other thing is, when I go to a website now, or if you go to a city you don't live in, you pick up their paper and you start to look at their police spotter, it's not interesting. And even though I think early on there were a lot of clicks on these stories and it was an easy way to fill up the paper, an easy way to fill up the website, I don't think they get the clicks that they once did. And let's talk about mugshots. They will brand someone forever. And also let's talk about these silly stories where someone steals I don't know, a bunch of gum, and the reporter who covers cops thinks this is an amusing story, and they'll put that in the paper, and it will follow the person for the next 30 or 40 years. So I think we have limited resources, and we really need to rethink about what we cover. Certainly, we need to cover stories to make sure people are safe, but all these little misdemeanors and even less so the violations, we don't need to cover those. Although I'm torn about some of that because if there are burglaries in my neighborhood, I want to know about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, And if there is a burglar in my neighborhood, I want to know about it. But I think you're absolutely right, Judy. I felt terrible as an editor when we would put in case after case after case of arrests only from the police agencies that we could get to and never follow up on what happened with cases that might have been dismissed. So it's it's unfair. So do I get this right? You two retired people who were running (laughs) newspapers are now having second thoughts about what you did when you were there. What can we extrapolate about that? That it's easier to make pot shots from the sidelines. Uh, (laughs) We are all these uh, retirees. And actually, Alan, you used to be the editor and publisher of the Fire Island Times, as I recall. The Final Sun. I'm sorry. Oh, the Times is probably the competitor. Let's get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The the paper of record of uh, Ocean Beach. Well, it was actually the alternative paper of Ocean Beach. Oh, cool. Did uh, you publish crime? We would publish anything because we needed to fill up the paper. (laughs) We're familiar with that. And this is why people think the media are arrogant. In fact, we had this huge fight between the editor, who was my friend, who was really the secret in charge, as we say, and me. I was supposed to fill up half the paper. He came on saying, you have to fill up half the paper with ads. Well, I couldn't get half the paper of ads. So whoever bought a little tiny one-inch ad ended up with a half a page. The secret uh, in charge. So yeah. he was Tony Soprano and you were Uncle Junior. That's good. <laughs> so uh, here we are anyway. This Very is good. good. You know, when I was a young reporter, actually I was the editor of this little tiny paper in northwestern Indiana in the 70s. And the tradition was that we would run the sheriff's log and the police plotter. Who was taken into the jail? Who was arrested? We would run those in this little tiny paper, the Rensselaer Republican from Rensselaer, Indiana. You know, the sheriff, I learned the hard way, was entering things in the sheriff's log in pencil so that he could erase the entries into the jail of drunken, prominent citizens, let's say, and do them a favor. And that actually happened to me. I was ready to publish the sheriff's log, and I found out that this prominent citizen's name was, in fact, erased from the the log. Anyway, the point is— Wait, wait, wait. I have one more thing to say. Sir, sir, please. Because I'm Alan Chartok and no to a few people— Some guy decided he was going to take his car and run over our gardens and leave me a present, which was a bag filled with very mysterious things. Really? Yes, like two cups filled with mustard. I don't know what they were supposed to represent. 
tied together. And I called the cops. The cops came. Um, and they said, well, what do you want us to do about it? I said, I want you to find the guy and arrest him. And they had knocked down our newspaper, you no. know, our eagle Well, thing. that's a First yeah. Amendment violation well, interfering absolutely. with it. <laughs> so they ride down the street. They see a car, and the car's got a big dent in the front of it. And they say, well, that must be the guy because that was what he did to the newspaper. Anyway, they take the guy into custody, and then you're looking like you're bored. Uh, I, I want to make sure you're not. <laughs> did your uh, name get in the paper? No. Oh, no, 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 not at all. So they arrest the guy, and he has to go to court, and then he burns down a couple of buildings in uh, Great Barrington. My wife, the lovely Roselle, gave me hell because she said I was overdoing it when I was asking the cops to find him. So don't you see, it's important that we know these things. Well, it's important to some extent, but let's not forget that a huge percentage of these minor crimes, especially, by the way, involve people of color. So in our current conversation about the way that the society reflects the racism that is a part of our history, it's worth noting that that disproportionate coverage in the paper, if we're covering all of these little crimes, also disadvantages those people further. I think it does that, and it goes beyond that. You're right that in a very white town like Saratoga, when we would run a mugshot of arrests, they were disproportionately people of color, which perpetuates the myth that people of color commit more crimes. So that's terrible. But it also goes beyond that to economic unfairness and rural versus city unfairness and favoritism. I know exactly what you're talking about, that people were protected from being in the police blotter when they shouldn't have been. So On the other hand, people often, you know, when we're out in the community in our former lives as editors talking to people, I would often hear from folks who would complain, well, why do you always write about the crime? And I would say that it's a departure from the norm. You know, we're very lucky in this country. We live in a community that is largely safe. That is, crime is a departure from the norm. Most of us live peaceful lives. So news is what is not typical. And that's what makes crime itself newsworthy. It's just that like everything else, every other decision that we make in journalism, we have to make it thoughtfully. And I do think that we've had a knee-jerk reaction to publish whatever the cops tell us is going on. And we've also found that that's not always true, that accusations that are filed by the police have been shown to be fraudulent, just like the, well, the initial George Floyd account for the press release that the Minneapolis Police Department put out did not reflect the reality Mm -hmm. that was recorded by that wonderful 16-year-old You're listening to the Media Project, folks, (laughs) (laughs) otherwise known as the ex-editor show. (laughs) That's Rick Smith. Thank you. You're doing very well, Alan. You know, you could develop a career in radio, probably. I'll try. <laughs> oh, by the way, this is radio, so you can't see my T-shirt, but look at this. This says, wow. uh, says pay for the news, because Alan has a black T-shirt that says slow down. Mine slow down, says pay yeah. for the news. That's okay. You don't have to <laughs> do likewise. But if you all could see what's going on, we're very proud of this. Pay for the news, which is suggesting that if you're enjoying the media, you ought to support it. By the way, that would be do something, Alan, to make money for the station here. There you go. Wow. But I do understand, Rex, that you have been eternally jealous of what public radio gets in its funding, and you have been looking for ways for years to try to get people to kick in and support newspapers other than what they pay or what the advertising is, and I'm all for it. As long as your publishers will renounce their ownership of the newspapers and say, okay, we'll make our newspaper into a not-for-profit newspaper. This is an eternal fight here on the Media Project, folks. 
So you believe that all newspapers should be nonprofit enterprises? No, not at all. I believe if you want the public purse to support it, like, that, like government or the public members. purse as opposed to the public, like like people. government. Government. Well, so, so would you say then that WAMC ought to pay taxes the way for-profit enterprises do? Because you do get the tax breaks. We do, part. and that's why we're called not-for-profit. Right. And right. that's that's so. A, I'm just saying that is category. public support. Yeah, but that's mm-hmm. a category that exists in this country. Right. Not-for-profit companies don't pay taxes so that they can exist. Rex, mm-hmm. I think it's great. Comma, pause, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not saying that everybody, any entity that receives government financing or any loans or stimulus money, needs to be nonprofit. Why do you guys insist on putting words in my mouth? I thought that's what you, you mean, said. you guys. Yeah. <laughs> are you talking about? <laughs> uh, if you're going to go the membership model. You are listening to the ex-editor's show. <laughs> Very unhappy people. All we right. were unhappy when we were editors, just to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> One of the effects of the decline in the financial stability of for-profit, as well as, well as not-for-profit uh, journalism in this country, is uh, the downsizing. There have been reports of more... Uh, mass exits from Chicago Tribune, for example. Alden Global Capital is this outfit that has owned a number of newspapers and has now taken over Tribune, which is giving them even more newspapers, and people are leaving. Chicago Tribune has about 40 journalists who are leaving. And recently news came out that a couple of the newspapers that have just been taken over by this hedge fund, which already owns the papers that Barbara used to be the editor of, the Saratogian and the Troy Record, that that company has now ordered page count reductions. The New York Daily News, for example, which used to be read by 6 million people a day, is going to be even 20% smaller than its already shrunken size, which is quite the phenomenon. This is a print product, of course, that is shrinking because people are not paying as much attention to print. People are getting their news digitally. So print products are, of course, going away. But nevertheless, that is a hard thing to stomach to see the continuing decline, and that is the first immediate impact of this hedge fund taking over some major newspapers. And that's one of the first things you hear when people call up to cancel their subscription. The paper's so thin. It's too thin. There's nothing in the paper. We weren't getting that 20 years ago, and you get that a lot nowadays. I mean, people are paying good money for their newspaper, and they want to see some heft there. I think restoring page counts would be a wonderful way for us to start building back up some subscriptions. There's some economics involved in that, which I know you know, and the ratio of ads to news content has modified over time, and I can't remember now exactly what it was, but it was at least half ads and Mm -hmm. half news. And if you are missing a lot of print ads, you don't have the people to fill that space with content that's going to be relevant to your... This is what's significant about the haves and the have-nots, by the way, in journalism, because if you look at the New York Times, the Sunday Times often has huge, thick sections with no advertising, special reports, special sections, which they're able to do because they have 7 million digital subscribers. We have all that revenue coming in, and so they can afford to channel more back into print that the rest of us in journalism have not been able to do. By the way, 20 years ago, you were lucky. You were working for a locally owned newspaper that still had a really fat news hole. I had gone to work as the editor of the Troy paper, which was owned by what is then the predecessor of what is now Alden Global Capital. And my first day 
the day before I became the editor, I was riding a float in the parade, the Flag Day parade in Troy. And people were shouting from the sidelines. There was the publisher of the paper at the time was on the float with his wife and children waving at the crowds. And I was Very sitting brave. there looking on the float because nobody knew who I was. I was just about to take the paper. And the people were yelling, if you can slip it under the door, don't bother. And, you know, there's nothing for my canary to read. It was just really amazing. The publisher was throwing candy off the float and people were throwing it back, you know. Is really, and what am I going to wrap my fish in? <laughs> exactly. There wasn't enough paper to, and this is one of the things that local ownership sustained the kind of journalism that you wanted to do for a long time. I, I believe the paper is smaller now than it was when you were the editor. Yeah, the then. Daily Gazette in Schenectady, the paper I worked for, was blessed with a really big news hole for a very long time. It is far smaller nowadays, but we covered a lot of territory. We had a lot of reporters, and we published a lot of stories every day. And a word out to our wonderful producer of this program, David Speedy Gustina, who interviews now all of the editors, except one that I can think of, of the newspapers around here, and they are very delighted to have that coverage. I think that's a change. I think in the old days it would have been seen, well, they're going to give off their proprietarial stuff and you'll be making out like bandits. But now everybody, with one exception, is clamoring to get on. I don't know. I've been on this show for 25 years plus. I've always been happy to you're be a good here. Man, I think Rex, we're uh, always eager to, to have our hand here. You're a good man, and I want to emphasize that. Always eager to help you out, Alan. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That's what Alan was doing, making fun of me. You can share your thoughts at media at WAMC.org. We'd be very happy to hear from you. Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. I read an interesting thing in Ben Smith's column in the New York Times that I want to get your opinions on. Ben Smith, of course, is this uh, very thoughtful uh, media columnist for the Times, uh, former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Actually, he was the first guy who created the online coverage of the New York State Legislature. That was for the New York Daily News back 20 years ago. Ben Smith's column talks about Tucker Carlson, and he points out that Tucker Carlson has been a secret source for many media reporters, that it is an open secret, Ben Smith wrote, that, quote, Mr. Carlson, a proud traitor to the elite political class, spends his time when he's not denouncing the liberal media, trading gossip with them. He is the go-to guy for sometimes unflattering stories about Donald J. Trump and for coverage of the internal politics of Fox News. Isn't this kind of an amazing thing that Tucker Carlson is the source for all of these journalists and that this is being revealed by Ben Smith? What amazes me is that I thought that when you had off-the-record conversations, you were supposed to keep that Well, I'm not sure that they were off-the-record conversations. When I read that, I was amazed and startled and disheartened and maybe a little sick to my stomach because it helps explain why somebody like Tucker Carlson can have a huge ego and power that he has power that is bestowed upon him by mainstream media because he knows they need me to tell them stuff and that they are beholden. And something that Alan has alluded to in the past, I think, if somebody is helping you and providing you information, that there is a tendency maybe to go soft on them, and that's bad. I was very disheartened to see how much power was afforded to him. And I don't think he's unique in this. I mean, I, I think there are an awful lot of people who were in the Trump administration. It was driving Trump nutsy, nutsier, based on the fact that he couldn't find out who the leaks were within his own organization who were talking to some of the press. And 
what, what role the press had in all of that. So I think if you took a look at many of the people who break stories, you would find that the Tucker Carlson experience was pretty well replicated by a lot of others. Yeah, and I think one of Ben Smith's contentions or one of the conclusions I came away from was the idea that, I agree with Barb, the media, the mainstream media tends to go, even though it seems like they're going rough on uh, Tucker Carlson and some of the outrageous things he does and perpetuates, I think that they could go far tougher on them, and they're not. They're laying off him a little bit because he's a source. I think you could also say that when people are representing different points of view, have very different political points of view or different views on issues, and you're journalists, that maybe off hours, out of sight of work, you can still be friends or have other things in common, music, family, other interests, and still get along. But in this particular case, Tucker Carlson has done a horrible disservice to America continues to do that. So now now I see how, through Ben Smith's column, how we are actually enabling him. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I think you're right. What you're saying is that there is a degree of range. It's fine to be able to, apart from the business of doing journalism, to be getting along with the people you're covering. But Tucker Carlson calls journalists animals. He really is trying to downgrade Americans' trust in journalism but then he gets on the phone and just chats it up with the journalists, the very people that he is attacking, and he takes advantage of this system that he is denigrating and trying to tear apart, actually. It is the height of cynicism, isn't it? And he does some real damage. I mean, he, he yeah. leads his legions of followers to call out people on social media and dox them in some substantial way. Reporters are victims of Tucker Carlson. I think there's a real problem, but well, I also reporters agree. Reporters are not the victims. It's well, the well, public is the victim. Well, but also, he will call out a reporter, a mainstream reporter, and say she or he is doing something wrong, and then you'll see the social media wow come down at her and start sending vile messages and threats their way. But I also think it is interesting that Smith is revealing unnamed sources. Yeah, I am stunned by that. He's unabashed about it. It isn't as though he explained in the column, well, I felt that I could say this, that I needed to say it. You know, I have had off-the-record conversations with the guy who's now the governor of New York, and I wouldn't even... Don't mention his name, though. No, no, because <laughs> he's an unnamed source. But, I mean, I couldn't even talk about the fact that we had those conversations because he would begin the conversation, he'd get on the phone and say... Just the two of us talking here. It's off the record, right? Well, what do you say? Revealing that. What do you say? I say, yeah, he okay, because I want to know. He once said something to me that was totally objectionable and amazing, and he started that way, too, and I have not yeah. yet ever used it. But exactly. It, 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 so, bad that, so let's remember yeah. when Jesse Jackson said to a Washington Post reporter, I Hymie think, Hymetown, yeah. when he used that term. That was in an off-the-record conversation. But the journalist, I'm sorry, I can't recall at this moment the details of it, but the journalist thought that it was so important that the guy who was then the second leading Democratic candidate for president in 1988 would have said that, that he revealed it. He broke the promise of confidentiality. So I guess there are times when you do that, but this surprised me. I'm glad to have Tucker Carlson called out, but if I were Carlson, I wouldn't speak to Ben Smith again. But it's not just calling Tucker Carlson out. It's calling out all the journalists. 
right. who are being used by him. Yeah. They think they're using For him. For all the journalists except his New York Times colleagues, oh, which he specifically them. mentions, he goes, I didn't ask any of my New York Times colleagues about this. So. Oh, <laughs> isn't that good? <laughs> they're clear. <laughs> How politic. Note, by the way, that Ben Smith is media columnist. He is not the public editor. That job does not exist anymore. When Margaret Sullivan, for example, was the public editor of the New York Times, she had the license to be more free with that. I think she might have spoken to Times colleagues because her job didn't depend upon waiting for somebody to come she, down upon she's her. She's not the public editor anymore? Uh, no, she's... That was a rhetorical question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> yes, that job has now vanished. Yes, um, I wonder why. Yeah, they're relying on the public to be the public editor. Yes. Right, apparently. right. That's a really great thing. Well, we'd be interested to hear your views, folks. Media at WAMC.org. Finally today, we want to take note of unfortunate news. Among 46 countries in the digital news report from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford, the United States ranks last in media trust among 92,000 consumer surveyors in 46 countries, worse than Poland, worse than the Philippines, worse than Peru. Why? I guess the question is, what can be done about that? Right. That's what I thought. Dead air. Because <laughs> we don't know, do we? It is just really a difficult thing. I mean, you, you may wonder what distrust mean, but... But you know what? It's a conundrum because I'd like to know what the questions were, how they were asked. Have you stopped beating your wife yet? What question, were the questions? The, how were they asked? The primary question and, and was... And now we're repeating. Yeah. Right. It, it was a very open-ended question. I think the primary question was, you had to answer yes or no. I think you can trust most news most of the time. Now, I don't even know I would say yes to that. Really? Interesting. Because do I trust Newsmax? Do I trust Fox? Do I trust AONN or whatever? Um, right. It was left for the person answering to answer how whatever meant to them and I'm not even sure who they were asking who's responding not to say that people don't distrust the media but now we're feeding on that bad news by repeating this what I would call God shaky forbid we report should do that well God we're... we should do that and, and <laughs> say what the poll showed because that would be bad well you know I'll, polls. I'll find you another poll okay. I'll tell you I have great respect for all of you especially for here comes the book especially <laughs> Especially Judy, who has now taken to wearing her glasses at the end of her nose, which I take to mean that she's a big fan of Chuck Schumer. All right, let's go with the butt, though. Yeah, where, where's that butt? It ain't here. No, no. By the way, what is the most popular topic of news among these 92,000 consumers? I guess crying. No, it was weather. It was weather. weather as oh, you sure. Of course. Yeah, of course. I, don't, I don't know it's where weather. The weather. Weather was in the top five. Or weather well, was then one. Then you could look out your window and say, <laughs> yes, it is raining. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe in polls, but I tell you, there is always a question in my mind whether or not people lie to their pollsters because they think it's just not right to say something, you know, to say, well, yes, I believe weather is the number one issue. They may believe it, but I doubt they're going to say it. Okay. Well, on those words of doubt, we have to let it go. Dr. Alan Shartok, thank you for being our host here. Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, Dave Gostina, and to you all for joining us once again this week on The Media Projects. They all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. 
When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Tingling-ling, newspaper guild. Got a free... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Chartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.